This afternoon we want to talk about resolving conflicts in marriage. Uh, there's not a marriage here that hasn't faced conflict. Uh, some more than others. Some more intense than others. But we've all faced it. Well, we must first correctly define the meaning of conflict. Look at some of these words. A conflict is a serious, sometimes not so serious, argument. So it's a serious argument. Typically a protracted one. One that's been going on for a period of time. Synonyms are dispute, fighting, quarreling, disagreement, having a falling out, having a shouting match, or having a war of words. You know, I, I once counseled a man and his wife, and the wife came first and she said, my husband is extremely angry. And uh, I wish you would address that in the session. And I said uh, to them, sir, I said, your wife tells me that you're really angry. He says, I'm not angry. I wonder what your wife means when she says you're angry. Well, you know, I get agitated, irritated, upset, ticked, peeved, but I'm not angry. <laughs> See, he didn't want to get the word anger because that's in the Bible. But if you can get these words that are synonyms, you go, oh, I'm fine. I just get irritated, agitated, whatever. I said, sir, I says, if I'm going to help you with your anger, I have to get you to buy into that you're just using synonyms that describe your behavior. And he did this. He said, I am not angry. And I'm never coming back to this office again. And he never did. But I couldn't help him unless he was going to see that he really had an angry anger problem. And he demonstrated it as he walked out of my office and slammed the door. Well, we have conflicts. I don't care how we call them, but they are conflicts. How do we resolve them? How do we work them through? Well, first, we must recognize the sinful source of our conflicts. What is the source of my conflict? What's the, where's the root? Where do, I, where do I look at? Well, if you went to James chapter 1, 13 through 15, you would see uh, conceived desires are the roots of sinful behavior and sinful conflict. What's it say? It says, let no man say when he is tempted that he's tempted of God. Because God doesn't tempt anyone. Neither is he tempted by sin. But listen, every man is tempted when he's dragged away by his own desires. And when desires conceive, it's like an egg and a sperm. When desires conceive, they grow and they give birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, and this is the tragedy of it, it gives birth to death. Now, some people say, well, what are you talking about death? Well, maybe not literal death. You know, you, you, you're dragged away by your desires and you don't die. We all have desires, righteous ones and sinful ones, but we don't die. What dies? Love, emotion, relationships, 
marriages die. That's what happens. But get to, get to the root. What are your desires? You get into a conflict with your spouse. What desire did you have? Because that's the root. And you've got to be asking, I ask people, what did you want? What did you desire? Now look at this next point. These desires and wants are the source of many conflicts. Look up here. In James 4, it asks a question. The question is this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes fights and quarrels among you two? How about you two? What causes it? He answers it. Doesn't it come from the desires? King James was passions, lusts. It's a strong word. Lust is a strong word, but it's not just talking about sexual lust. Like, I just want this so much. It's like lust. Don't they come from your desires that are battling within you? You want something, you don't get it, so you quarrel and fight. Now listen, you kill and you covet. Kill. There's that death idea again. Something dies when desires compete. You kill and you covet, but you still don't get what you ask for. You even ask God, and you still don't receive it because you're asking with the wrong heart motivation that you may spend what you get on your own pleasure. There's that selfishness that's really a central theme throughout all of communication and conflict resolution. Give up yourself. That's what we're asked to do. That doesn't mean lose your identity to your spouse if they're going to dominate over it. That's not what I mean. But giving, if you have two people who are willing to give themselves to the other person, wow, it's a 100% marriage. Let me quote it again. What causes, you know, think about yourselves just for a minute, the two of you. What, the last fight you had, the last argument, the last conflict, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle? That's an interesting word. They're battling. I'm going to... They battle within you. You want something, but you don't get it. I want this. I want this. Nobody moves. I'm putting my stake in the ground here. I'm putting my stake in the ground here. I want what I want. I want what I want. What do you have as a resolution? You don't have one. Then you have to ask the question, what does God want? What does God want or desire? And we're going to make this where God, what God wants or desires right here in the center. Husband, wife, God wants. I want what I want. Somebody has to say, I want what God wants. And maybe just one will do that. But it still requires then the other to give up what they want or desire to what, not their spouse wants, to what God wants. And you get on the same page with God. But that, that does require you to understand, well, what, what does God want? We, we often create in our minds a theology of what God wants, a belief system of what God wants, when God doesn't really want that at all. It's created by our own reasoning, 
lean not on your own understanding. We can't create our own theology of life. We have a creator that gave us a book and it gives us all that we need for life and godliness. It gives us something for training, for rebuking, telling us we're wrong, but also for correcting. That's what biblical counseling does. And then giving us training in righteousness. So we're saying the sinful source of our conflict is our desires that are not the desires that God desires. So our battle isn't with our spouse first. Our battle is vertical. I just don't want what God wants. I know you may, you may know what God wants. I don't want what God wants. So then we're going, we're going to have this. That's why we're so keen on saying, look, don't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. And if you are, there's even ways to live in a way that honors Christ in that. We want something so much that we're willing to sin against God and others in our communication and actions to get it, even if death or murder is the result. Think about it. The drive and motivation to get our desires fulfilled is as strong as the desire between two adulterous people. Now, let me quote for you this passage again. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, you don't get it, so you quarrel and fight. You covet and kill, but you still don't get it. You ask God, you still don't get it, because you're asking with the wrong motivation that you can spend what you get on your own pleasure. You know what the next two words are? Three words. You adulterous people. See, what is this? one of the strongest pulls in marriage that's enjoyable? It's a physical relationship. We're going to talk about that in some way uh, tonight before dinner. But the sexual relationship is a strong drive. It's, it's only second to food. And, and James said, the battle that's going on, the pull, the drive to get what you want is like you want to have sex with whatever it is that you want. I desire it. I'm going to have it. It's a strong drive. We are, I'm going to be connected to it rather than connected to what God wants me to be connected to. And that's my husband or my wife. Okay. Now, we're not talking about we are, but we're not talking about just actual adultery, but he uses that term to show you how strong sometimes I want cherry pie and I won't have anything else, but she wants blueberry pie. Well, what kind of pie are we going to get? Well, we could buy two, but then it's not too much pie, right? So, but we have to yield. If I was going to go out and buy a pie today, I would buy blueberry. You know why? because my wife loves blueberry pie. I use the illustration, if I called my wife up and I said, hey honey, I'm, I'm coming home with uh, your favorite dessert put on the coffee. If I walked in the door with a cherry pie, she'd look at me and she'd say thanks. But she'd say, you were thinking of what you like. You weren't thinking of me. If I walk in the door with a blueberry pie, she knows I was thinking of her. Do we ever give up our rights, our desires, 
never give up a right and a desire that God desires, but when, we, when our desires are inordinate and are, they're in conflict and they're creating such tension, should we give it up? Yes, definitely. Give it up to God's desires. Well, we must recognize the sinful source of our conflict. Your desires. Think about it. I said, think about the last time you got angry. What did you want and what did your spouse want? Which of those did God want? And maybe you say, neither. Which of those did your wife want that wasn't where God wants because he needed to come over? That's the source of conflicts. Well, three here. We must settle conflicts by tearing down the idols of the heart with their false theology and practices. Now, how many have ever heard of the concept of idols of the heart? Raise your hand. Okay, good. That concept, that theology, that teaching comes out of initiated, it was initiated in Ezekiel chapter 14. We'll turn there in a minute. But James calls the desires and actions of a person in conflict. He, he uses the word, that person is, a, is coveting, a coveter. Paul calls the one who covets an idolater. So when I want something so bad, I am willing to get it. Whatever it is that I want or desire that I'm going to get and be sinful in getting it, that desire, that thing is the idol. You've raised it up. You want to have sex with it, really. But you want to worship that. And, and because it becomes your God, your idol, your functional God, you have a way of believing about that. You have a way of getting what you want. What you want isn't what God wants. Ezekiel warns us of the seriousness of this by calling these idols of the heart. So what is the seriousness of idols of the heart? If you have your Bible, just quickly go to Ezekiel, and it's in the 14th chapter, and I'll read it to you. you listen carefully. But um, Ezekiel is talking when he says, Then the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols, and notice it's plural, into their hearts, plural, and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I let them, should I let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets a stumbling block of iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, which says that each one of us can have more than one idol, more than one desire competing against our spouses. That I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who have all estranged from me. One version says, who have all deserted me through their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, repent, turn away from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations, all your sin. Repent, turn. Well, first you have to see what the battle is. And the battle is these desires that I'm going to get it, and I don't care who I have to take down to get it. You have in your, in, in your notes here 
something we call uh, the idols of the heart diagram. And, and this is what I've replicated up here. What, what I want you to see is this. It, this is your heart. This is my heart. It is the heart of the believer. Some of you may, may have seen Campus Crusade. It has a little track and it has a heart and it has a chair in it. And it says, if Jesus isn't sitting on the throne of your heart, if he's outside of your heart, then you're not saved. That, forget that. Erase that from your mind. That's not what we're trying to portray here. This is, the, this is the throne of your heart. And whatever sits on it energizes you to go after whatever it is you want or desire. Okay? Whatever's sitting on the throne motivates you to go after your desires. Now, for the believer, they should be on this side. Because what God wants and what God desires where do we find that where do we find out what God wants and God desires class yes we find it in God's word which if you understand the confessions of faith they say God's word is our only rule authority of our faith and our what class? Practice. Faith, what we think, believe, practice what we do as a result of what we think. So if I'm thinking right, if I'm thinking biblically, and then I'm doing biblically, yes, God is sitting on the throne of my heart directing my wants and desires, helping me check my wants and desires and being sure there is, and then I can do them. And if we're on this side, there's, there's all kinds of things that I believe, and there's all kinds of things that I do, and if they fit this, I'm in good shape. If I have a wife that fits that, we're both in good shape. Oh, yes, but there's the other side the other side. The other side is this. What I want, what I desire, where do I find that? What I want and I desire. Here's where. It's called Ron's word. called Ron's Word. You say, oh, do you have a book that's your word? No, I don't have a book. I, it's, all, it's all put here. I know how to get my desires. I know how to get what I want. And I create a way to do that. It doesn't have a thing to do with this. It has a thing to do with getting what I want, that I want it so bad I'm really ready to sin to get it. Now, sometimes our wants and desires, God's, our conflict with God's wants and desires and our wants and desires, Sometimes we desire the same thing that God wants. But our way of going about getting it isn't the same. So sometimes in Ron's Bible, the faith is the same as God's. But where I fail is in the practice on how to get it. For instance, I want a wife that's my companion and my helper 
and I want her to have a sweet and a, and a, a quiet spirit and reverence. That's what I want. Let me check that. And you know, when I look in the Bible, is that what God wants? Yes, that's what God wants. Now, how do I get it? How do I get it? See? Well, if she doesn't do it, I ask her. I yell. I hit her. I kick her. I don't provide for her. I don't love her. I don't lead her. I don't. I'm going to show you. If you don't give me what I want, I'm not going to give you what you want. I desire this. She desires that. We're in conflict. You get it? You see what I'm saying? Now, what's over here? Does God want me to have that kind of wife? Yes. What's he say? What's the practice? What should be the practice? I shall fulfill my role whether I get that or not. I should be the lover, leader, learner, lecturer, listener, loyal, laborer for my wife. And when I do that, I'm doing what God wants. I'm pleasing God. And I believe, and I've seen that, that my wife is pleased too. Now, but let's say I'm over here. I'm going to practice this. Where does that come from? Where do those practices come from? Not in God's word, but in Ron's word. Ron created it as a, as a way to get what he wants selfishly for himself. So that has these, that want or desire has become an idol. And now the idol sits on the throne and is energizing this kind of behavior. God doesn't get, you don't, get, you don't lose your salvation when that happens, but just conceptualize this. This is the footstool, and God becomes the footstool of the idol for a period of time. That's a disgusting picture, I know. But in reality, that's what happens. God, you're out of this one. I'm getting what I want or desire, and I really don't care what you think. I'm going to let my idols, my functional gods, rule because they give me what I want. They're kinder to me than you are because you're not giving me what I want. And if God doesn't give you what you want or desire and it's right, wait for a while. He's trying to teach you something through not giving it to you. Ezekiel says, this is an idol. Think about some time in your life where you've had idols. You wanted something and you didn't get it and how it ruled. And the only solution to that is to say, all right, I repent of this. I, I set up my own theology of life to get that. I repent of it. And I go back to saying, okay, God, what do you want or desire? I repent of this. I embrace this as, as the way to please you. I want to be where you are. Well, why do we have such a conflict here? Because in Jeremiah, verse 17 Verse, verse 17, chapter 17, verse 9, says what? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. wicked. 
Who can know it? The answer is, who can know it? Do you know your heart, Aaron? Oren, do you know your heart? Only once in a while. Only when you look into God's Word and let the Word of God show you where your heart is on target or not. That's right. You can't really... Somebody has to either say something to you or you have to read the Word in your own devotional time and say, well, I'm not there. God, I'm not there. I want to be here. I want to let the Word establish what I believe and then I want the Word to establish what I practice. But this is still such a draw. It's like, oh, I want to have sex with it. God says, give it up. It won't get you what you want. Ultimately, it will lead to what, class? Death. That's what it will lead to. Well, look at the bottom. It says, repent. Turn from your idols. Turn away from all your abominations. Repent. Turn away from your competing sinful desires and selfish wants. And turn away from your sinful behaviors. You know, I'm here today to do two things. First, if you need it, and I think we all do, I want to change your mind about some things. I know that in counseling, a man is not transformed without the renewing of his mind. So I'm not at all shy to say, I want to change your mind. If your mind needs to be changed to God's way, I want to see that change. First, it has to come in the heart right here. I have to be able to see the idols, and I can see that as it contrasts God's word. I want to change your mind, your heart. As a man thinks in his heart, he is. So if you go out thinking the same way you came in this morning about all the, this was a wasted day for you. Because you'll be exactly the same. That's what that was the problem with people who go to seminars. They go to seminar after seminar, seminar. It never changes. Because they don't take anything different out the door to focus on in their mind to be different. It doesn't transform them because it hasn't sunk here. And I'm more, I'm more concerned about getting it here into you, first into the thought, into the heart piece. And then from that can come behavior. What does James say? He said, whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and he's not a forgetful hearer, but he's a, what? Doer. See, you can get your, you can hear, you can say, that's right, what Alton's saying is right. Yeah, I like that. Question is, what will you do when you step out the door? Will there be any changes? Now, some of your marriages, I know, I've dealt this many, are, are different levels of maturity, age, length, and whatever, and you have different issues. Well, if and I have different issues, we're in a different season of life. Some of you are younger, you're in a different <laughs> season of life. But you've got to see what God wants you to do, and that's establish a lifestyle of thinking through by faith in the mind, this is what God wants, in the heart, this is what God wants, and then you're going to be doers of the word. James said, don't just be a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. Any man who's a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, he's a man who what? Looks at himself in a mirror and says, ha, 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 ha. And he walks away and forgets what he looks like. Yeah. 
Jesus is the one who said, if you know these things, remember he was teaching, he was washing his disciples' feet. And he was teaching his disciples servanthood. And he said to them, if you know what I'm doing, washing feet, if you really get the truth of what I'm doing, I can see you washing feet. If you're washing feet, you'll be happy if you wash feet. You'll be happy if you humble yourself. I didn't come for you to serve me. I came to what class? Serve you. Can you imagine a husband and wife who take that same attitude? What a wonderful change it would be in some people's lives to say, let me serve you. Well, repent. Turn away from all your competing sinful desires and selfish wants and turn away from your sinful behaviors. Let's go to four. Well, four says, we must dig out any roots of bitterness that lead to conflict by practicing forgiveness. Hebrews 11, verse 15. If you have your Bible, you ought to turn to it. It's a great one to, to memorize. But 11, 15, or I'm sorry, 12, 15 says this. It says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it many become defiled. Many become defiled. Look what it says. When anger is not handled quickly, bitterness is one of the destructive tools that the devil uses to break the unity. That was our communication rule number two, which is what class? Be honest and keep current. Yes. Uh -huh. If you don't keep current, remember anger moves to bitterness, bitterness moves to vengeance, vengeance moves to hatred. Once a bitter root springs up, it defiles many by affecting all of the bitter person's relationships in time and eventually destroying the bitter person. Bitter roots produce bitter fruits, such as unforgiveness, keeping a record of wrongs, judgmental attitudes, etc., all of which give the devil a foothold. Again, I'll raise my hand. How many want to give the devil a foothold? Well, you can give the devil a foothold by allowing anger to, to go to bitterness and bitterness to go to vengeance and vengeance to go to hatred. Or you can take a look at what makes you angry or what brings anger into your life and you can say, I want to deal with it. I want to keep the anger gone. I don't want it to turn to bitterness because when bitterness comes, there's a seed planted in my heart that produces fruits and all other types of sins flow from that seed. That's why we want to handle conflicts as quickly as we possibly can. I want to stop here just for a minute and ask you guys to do something as a couple. I want you to look at that chart called Root of Bitterness. And I want to read this verse for you again because it says this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it many become defiled. 
two things. We don't want to we, we don't want to fail to obtain the grace of God. And we don't want to defile people around us. So sit there as a couple and look at those fruit that are there around that heart and discuss, are any of these fruit of any seed of bitterness in either of us? Do we see any of these fruit in our relationship? Or maybe you can even think of this. Well, maybe not in our relationship. But when I was a young man, when I was a young lady in my family, that root of bitterness sprung up and affected me. Because if that happens, you can think of what might happen and how it will affect your children and others around you. So take a few minutes, look through the list, talk about it with one another, and see if any of those fit you. Okay? Go. Keeping in mind that the, the seed is an offense. And if it grows, it's an offense that hasn't been dealt with. And what happens, my sin growing in response to another's sin, real or perceived, against me. And those are the things that we need to communicate to resolve. Well, if we're going to resolve it, we must practice biblical forgiveness and move toward resolving the conflict. How do we get the seed out? How do we deal with the offense so that it doesn't move to bitterness, vengeance, and hatred? Well, something is wrong. Maybe both are wrong in every conflict. I want what I want must be changed to, read it, I want what God wants. I desire what God desires. When two people are on the same page with God, the conflict is resolved. We will understand and grant forgiveness when we truly understand and embrace what Christ has done for us. Now that Ephesians 4.32 was the act part of the fourth rule, act, don't react. Well, what were the actions there? Kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. It says, even as God forgives. And we often take people to, to Matthew 18, the second part of that passage, and we don't have time to open that totally up. But in that passage, it talks about uh, a master coming to take account of his servants, and he had one servant that owed him $10 million. And uh, the master was going to throw him into jail. Remember the story? And that servant gets down on his knees and pleads with the master, don't throw me into prison. I'll pay, I'll pay, I'll pay. If you, were, if you, had to own some, if you owed somebody $10 million, uh, what chance would you have of paying it? Any, anybody, maybe there's somebody in this room I don't know who's richer than I can imagine, but I'd be in trouble if somebody asked me to pay him $10 million. If somebody asked me to pay him a million dollars, I'd be in trouble, right? So what do you, what do, you do? So, he, so, so his master forgives him $10 million. The same guy just forgiven $10 million goes and sees somebody who owes him 10 bucks. Says, pay me what you owe me. He says, I can't. 
Look, send him to prison, sell his wife, sell his children, sell all the other. I want my ten. And, and, and the, the master saw that. He said, what are you doing? Don't you realize that your master just forgave you $10 million worth and you're not going to forgive this person $10 worth? You have to put offenses into perspective, ladies and gentlemen. If you don't, you think your $10 offense is worth a lot when God forgave you $10 million worth. That's the picture here. See, that's the picture. We raise up an offense that's worth 10 bucks, and we hang somebody on it when God gave you $10 million worth of pardon by hanging his son on a cross. There's something wrong in the heart of a person that that statement doesn't say anything to. You raise what you think is more important, and that $10 is over here. Because if you were on the same page with what God wants or desires, he says, forgive it. Forgive it. They come and say, I repent, forgive me. Forgive them. Don't hold them to the charge. But we're talking about the two of you, or maybe some people in your home. And you, you are vowed to love one another, commit, committed to one another, have a relationship with one another. Your hearts are trying to become one with one another. What's, what's $10? Give up $10. See, God gave up $10 million for you. That's the picture. Can we give up $10 for one another? Well, we will, we will understand and grant forgiveness when we truly understand and embrace what Christ has done for us. Forgiveness is about keeping our hearts soft toward our spouse by keeping self in the light of the cross and seeing our spouse as God sees them. How does God see us? This is how God sees us. God showed his love toward us in that when we were what class? Good people? Yes. Sinners. Christ died for us. God shows his love to us even when we sin. Now, if we're going to do that too, when my wife sins against me or I sin against her, I'm going to show her love. I'm going to approach her in love. Just like God did us. Ten million dollars worth. Okay. Forgiveness is an act of the will and a commitment to keep three promises that God made to us when he remembers no more. When I say it's an act of the will, some people think forgiveness is a feeling. You know, you know, I'll, f f I'll forgive you when I feel like it. It's not a feeling. It's, a, it's an obedient act of engaging your will in a way to say, I promise not to bring it up again to you, accusing you. I promise not to bring it up again to others, gossiping about you. I promise not to bring it up again to myself, revisiting in my mind, turning it to bitterness and hatred and vengeance toward you in my mind. I'm going to do what God does. And what's God say? I'll, re I'll bury your sin, where? In the depths of the sea, and I will remember them no more. Now, what does that mean? I'll remember him no more. I thought God was omniscient and he never forgets anything. Right? So how could he remember him no more? It doesn't say he forgets it. It says, I won't bring it up to you ever again. Because 
My son died for that on the cross. It was nailed to the cross. You'll never be held accountable for it, but we do want to change when we realize it's not, whoopee, I'll continue in sin, because he took it all. He did. But we don't want to abuse grace. So we forgive one another. We forgive one another. And when we forgive, we say, I'm not going to bring it up to you. You'll never hear about that again. Now, if it happens again, then you have another opportunity to forgive. But if a person says, I repent, forgive me, we have, a, we have a strange theology brought about by the psychological community of what forgiveness is. Just the idea. Uh, Oren here doesn't know that he offended me. But I walk up to him and say, Oren, you're forgiven. He doesn't know what he did. But I just forgave him. Is that, is that what God does with us? Does God forgive us before we ask? No. See, we're to forgive just like God forgives what I can say is, Oren, uh, what you said to me earlier really offended me, and I need to tell you that. Would you like to ask my forgiveness? Yes. And I'm going to grant it, and I'm never going to say anything to Oren again about it. That's what forgiveness is. Because he's going to say to me, I repent, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to do it again. The problem with forgiveness in our society, and even in some Christians' thinking, is they don't couple repentance with asking forgiveness. And you must. I forgive, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. Some people abuse forgiveness. But Jesus is the one who said, how often does, or the disciples said, how often does my brother come to me and say, I repent, forgive me? Now he says, says I repent, forgive me. Jesus said, if your brother comes to you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day says, I repent, forgive me, you must forgive him. What does repentance mean? Is that kind of some kind of an emotional feeling? No. Repentance says, I see my sin through God's eyes. It did that. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry for me. Oh, I really want to die. No, it's not sorry for me. It's sorry for God. It put his son on the cross. It was a sin against the righteous God, the one who put us on this earth to glorify him. That's, that, that was what we sinned against. So I see my sin. I'm sorry. I have a godly sorrow, not a worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is poor me. Godly sorrow is look what I did against God. But then there's a change of a will that says, I will to be forgiven. Will you forgive me? I will to change. I'm going to go to counseling. I'm going to dig into the word to find what it takes me to not do that again because I don't want to replicate it over and over again in my life. I'm going to change. See, if you resolve a conflict today, but you're not committed to change, you'll do the same thing tomorrow. Then you have to come back and say, please forgive me. Do it again. Please forgive me. That's redundant, and it, it accomplishes nothing, and it, it really isn't what repentance is. Repentance is change. It's a turnaround. When Ezekiel said, repent, turn from your idols, he didn't say, well, go over here today, but you can play around here tomorrow. Even though we might, we're, we're trying to change our thinking and change our habituation. Sometimes we fall into similar habituations if we aren't really committed to this side of this diagram. Promises. We don't forget either because we have a disc that has a lot of offenses. But if we don't think about those offenses, 
if we keep that disc in there because that offense doesn't happen again. Eventually, over a period of time, the, the offender can rebuild the trust in the offended, and that doesn't come up anymore. The further you get away from offense and the further that the offender changes his behavior, it's easy to forget and to not bring it up in their mind. The two of those promises are easy. Uh, the promise to not bring it up to others and not bring it up to you, the offender, is easy. You know why I say it's easy? Because for me to do that, I have to be able to talk. So if I show them, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I can't bring the offense up to you. Mm -hmm, and I can't talk about it with others. But that's easy. You can keep your mouth shut. The difficult one is, what do you do when you go to bed at night? You lay your head down on your pillow. And there you meditate on the offense. And that's where you have to learn to turn that offense over to God and let God take care of it. What good does it do to lay there and think about it? What you do that, it just turns to bitterness. Bitterness turns to vengeance. Vengeance turns to hatred. Who does it hurt? When you're bitter, who gets hurt? The, the person you're bitter against or you? Who? You. The person who's, who you're offended by may not even know it. They go through living life fine. They're controlling you with your bitterness. You know, we, we, we say bitterness is like the offended person taking poison and expecting the offender to die. And all it does is kill the offended. We must overcome conflict by putting off negative attitudes and putting on positive ones. The Beatitudes call for a major attitude adjustment. Listen to what you can, you can deal with offenses and conflict by application of just the Beatitudes. Listen to, listen to what they say. You've read them before. But it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Question, am I poor in spirit? Am I humble? Blessed are those that mourn. Do I mourn over my sin and the sin of others? Blessed are the meek. Am I gentle with other people? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Do I hunger and thirst after righteousness or do I hunger and thirst after my rights? It's either your rights or righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Am I merciful? Blessed are the pure in heart. How's my heart in this conflict? Blessed are the peacemakers. Am I a peacemaker? A peace breaker? Or a peace faker? Ken Sandy coined that. Some of us are peacemakers. Some of us are peace breakers. And depending upon the climate and attitude, atmosphere of your home, some people go around as peace fakers because they don't like the tension of that comes if they try to be a peacemaker. And then the last one. Blessed are those who, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. So do I persecute or am I persecuted? Think about those. Is that the attitude 
that I have. Because if I put off a negative attitude and put on that, I can resolve conflict. Resolving conflict requires our humility and laying down our rights to serve others. Philippians 2 talks about one mind, one love, one accord, no rivalry, no competition, having the same goals, considering others first, looking out for the interests of others. Not, it's not my way or the highway. We need, we need to be humble and lay down our rights to serve others. Jesus said it this way in Luke 9, 23 and following. He said, if you want to be my disciple, here are three things you have to do. My disciples aren't going to be disciples with bitterness and resentment and anger. They're going to resolve conflicts. But he says this, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, you've got to do three things. First thing, you've got to be willing to deny yourself. Keep in mind, what causes fights and quarrels among you? They come from your desires that battle within you. You want something, you don't get it, so you quarrel and fight. Some of those things are things that aren't necessarily right or wrong. I want the bathroom painted yellow. I want the bathroom painted blue. I'm going to have blue. I don't care. Some, some of the fights that people come into the center with are unbelievable. You would, you, I wish I, I wrote a book from the beginning of some of the issues, petty issues, that become major battles. Well, the color of the bathroom isn't the problem there either. It's something far deeper that's been going on for a longer period of time, but the, that color of that just surfaces it. But Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, if you and I are going to be his disciple, we've got to do three things. We've got, we got to be willing to deny ourselves. Again, we get back to that theme, selfishness, selfishness, selfishness. No, we've got to, we've got to deny ourselves. If I'm not willing to deny something in my life, something that's over here, so I have to get over here to be one of his disciples. But if I'm here, if I'm not willing to deny myself, I want what I want, what I want, I want this. I'm not going to deny myself of it. If that's the case, then I won't be a, a really effective disciple of his. But if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to deny yourself. You've got to be willing to live a life of, of denial of certain things, things that God doesn't even want you to have. But then you've got to take up your cross daily. Now, some people think that, oh, yeah, I've got this difficult wife, and she's a, she's a burden. I'll, I'll walk along life with this burden of my wife on my back. That's not the picture at all. When you put something to death, you're putting sin to death. You've got to put those wants and desires to death. If there's something that God doesn't want, you've got to put them to death. If not, they will be there just like you're having sex with some desire idol. Sorry, I'm using that word, and sometimes people get offended. If I offend you with using that word, uh, come and see me, and I'll ask your forgiveness. But you need to understand that we don't say, sometimes you don't say that word in our churches. <laughs> I, uh, nah, I'm not going to get it. <laughs> oh, now that I have you baited, I'll, I'll go there. <laughs> But I, I teach, a, I teach a, a whole talk on sexual intimacy in marriage. And uh, at one point, I, I, I stand up on a chair or on a table, and I'm looking down at everybody. 
And, and I say, imagine that you're, uh, you're on a special weekend getaway for your honeymoon or for your anniversary. And you rent this nice room in a nice hotel and it has jacuzzi in it and it has a heart-shaped bed with red satin sheets and it's got a, a heart-shaped thing around the top with lights, red lights blinking around the top and you lay down on the thing and you look up and there's mirrors on the ceiling and you both are ready for a wonderful jacuzzi. You move from the jacuzzi to the bed and you're embracing the most wonderful lovemaking opportunity you could ever think about. God's in heaven. He's looking down. What is he doing? For some people, sadly, it's this. When indeed, what God is doing is this. Yes, go ahead, enjoy it. That's exactly what I made it for, you see. That's where it is. So if we aren't going to teach it right in the church, the world certainly is not going to teach it right. And we've seen the consequences of that in our society. Well, losing my earpiece, it's time for me to say shut up. <laughs> Deny yourself, take up your cross, put something to death, and follow me. And you can't follow him unless you're willing to put the things to death that would hinder you from doing that. Because if I want to hold on to my life, I certainly won't follow him because he didn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't have another set of clothes. Well, maybe he did that. But he didn't have any money. He didn't have a house. He didn't have anything. He gave up everything to go there for you and me. What are we willing to give up? What are we willing to put to death? Can I put some of my wants and desires to death that cause me to look like an idol worshiper? And can I really get back to letting God wants and desires sit on the throne of my heart and generate the energy that I have to live for him? That's where we have to be. Then we can follow him. Resolving conflicts requires humility, laying down our rights to serve others. Seven says we must utilize God-honoring tools to resolve conflicts. Now, I want you to take some time. Now, go to your next page in your... And you're going to do this individually. Take that individual, each one of you individually, fill this out. What you're going to do, it's called a marriage and family conflict analysis. Most of us have experienced disagreements and conflicts in our relationships when our desires turn to expectations, something I want. Please indicate the approximate extent of agreement or disagreement between you and your spouse for each issue below. Rated according to the scale, according to the spouse column with the number you think your spouse will likely answer. Do not discuss it before you answer, but compare afterwards. It gives you a good insight into how the other feels. So go down through your family finance. Do you never conflict on this issue? Do you occasionally conflict? Do you frequently conflict? Or do you always conflict? Put an answer for you and an answer for your, what you think your spouse is going to put, and don't look on your spouse's test. Okay, go. Let's see what you, what you come up with. We are going to use this later on. So answer it uh, uh, honestly. I'll be collecting the papers when we're through. That's a joke, okay? That's a joke. Yeah, great.
Okay, how are we doing? Comparing? I want you to find one where you are at least one or two numbers apart. Got one? One or two numbers apart. Yeah? You got one? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, sorry. Don't, don't mean to rush you there. Uh -huh. Assistant something manager, huh? Good for you. All right. Yeah. Okay, if you don't, if you don't have, uh, if, you don't, if you're not finished, take with what you've got finished and compare and try to find one where you have at least uh, uh, one or two gaps between, maybe three gaps between, but which one, make sure you have one. When you have one, look up and let me know you've got it, because we're going to come around and ask you which it is. Not, we're not going to do that either, but we do want to do something with it, okay? Got yours? All right, got yours? Huh? You got one? You guys got one? All right, you're, you're all right. You're still coming up with it. All right. When you have that two or three numbers apart, you have an issue. Okay, whether it's creating a conflict or not, you'll know that if it's creating a conflict. So, you picked an issue. Here's what we want to do next. Everybody with me? Here's what you want to do next. You all got one? Raise your hand if you have one. You're one couple. You have you have an issue. All right. Got one? All right. Good. Got you. You're all set. All right. Now, thank you. Take that to a three, two, one. It's first step. You're going to take it to a three, two, one, which means on that issue, you're going to turn to your spouse and say, we're going to let men turn to the wives first and wives turn to the husbands. But men, you're going to tell your wife what you think and feel about that issue. She's going to talk back to you two minutes, which she heard you say, you're going to clarify it for one. Then we're going to let your wife tell you for three minutes what she thinks and feels about it. You're going to talk back to her too, exactly what she said to you. She's going to clarify one. Now you know, because you love one another, exactly what you think and feel about that issue. At that point, look in your, look in your material here, you have something called a conference table. At that point, you have a place, a date. It's uh, the 20, whatever it is today, 7th, I think. 6th? 26th. The time, it is almost 3 o'clock. The place, Orangeville Baptist Church, the topic, that's it. That's what you're going to talk about. You're going to come to a solution or a goal. Steps that you're going to take to implement that solution. And there's the rules, and we'll not do, we won't read through them right here, but we'll do this. Look, let me give you an example. If you said, 
there's a big gap in the area of the way we perceive finances. I'm a one, he's a four, or vice versa. What's the problem? We need to get on a budget. That would solve it. We're going to commit. Uh, here, here's a question I ask people all the time about this. Uh, if you make $1,000 a year, how much of it belongs to God? 100 hours? $1,000. Exactly, $1,000. That shocks a lot of people. That's not the way they think. God gave you $1,000 to steward. He says, give me, give me 100 to take care of the church if that's what your church believes. You look at the scriptures and it's a lot more than that. But we typically say the tithe is the precedent. 90% of that, $900 out of 1000 he gives you to steward, but it's his money. It gives you a whole new perspective. As a man thinks in his mind, he is. Now, that money's mine. No, it's not. It's God's. Think about it. When you go to the store, you're going to buy that thing. Think about it. Does God want you to have it? I want, I desire it. You'll go whatever you want to do. Some people, the reason why they're messed up with their finances is because their wants and desires are way beyond where God wants them to be. They bring them back to God's place, they'll be in good shape. They're, they're, they're living with their money over here. I rule it. Over here, God rules it. So, so we say we got to get on a budget. So what are we going to do? Here's the steps we're going to use. Next week, we're going to gather all the receipts up for the last month or so, and we're going to add them up in various categories. Then we're going to take a look and see uh, what, what, uh, what the income is to pay for those. Then we're going to see whether we're running in a deficit or whether we have a, a surplus. And by the end of, uh, uh, or by, by the start of October, we're going to be working on a budget. That's our target dates. So we have steps that we're going to take. That's what we're talking about. Some of these require those kind of steps. Some is going to be, well, we don't, we don't do devotions in our house. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to commit to a time around the dinner table, X number of times a week, where we're going to have family devotions. Well, what are the steps we're going to use? First, we've got to go find a book. Well, we have the Bible. We could do Proverbs until we find the book. Okay, what's it going to look like? It's going to look like, let's read around. Let's let the kids read around. Let's pray. Let's have some prayer cards. It's going to be, how are we going to organize that to accomplish it? That's the solution. And then the steps we're going to use. And somebody's designated to either go on Amazon Prime and find a good devotional book or go to the local Christian bookstore, if there are still some, and buy a book it's going to be for the family and the age group that you need. That's what we're talking about. So I gave you two examples. Take yours, talk it through, and let's see what you come up with. Okay? If you have any, any trouble coming up with solutions, raise your hand. My wife and I will roll through, and we'll, we'll be able to give you some principles that will help you do that. Conflict conference table. Okay, I sense uh, some of you are discussing it through. Uh, we are running out of time, so we need to do that. Uh, and I don't know what I've got. Oh, I see. There's the problem. All these wires. I want to draw you to one other tool that's in your sheet, and we're going to be closing. Take that issue home. That is the way when we're dealing with counseling people, or even Sherry and I, we, we look at that sheet, we think it through. This is formal. But you can, do, you can have a conference table when you're taking a walk. 
You can have a conference table when you're riding in the car if you are willing to abide by the principles of a conference table. And you can get on the same page with your wants and desires. You can get them where God wants you to be. That's my prayer as a result of our time talking about conflict resolution. This other, this other sheet, just let me tell you about it and we're going to close. We call it the boxing ring analogy for conflict resolution. Now listen to me and you'll get it. Some people love it. Some people hate the name, but they love the results. You two are in a boxing ring. And you're punching with words, whatever. You're flailing all over the place with your words. Some of the punches are hurtful. Some of the punches are soft punches. Some of the punches are undercuts. But you're hitting, what was that? Yeah, some of them are maggots. Yeah, maggot words. Yeah, but you're different, different, different analogy, but same idea. Yes. So what happens when two boxers are in a ring and the bell rings? You stop and you go to your corners. Now the corners are maybe the husband goes to the garage. Maybe the wife goes to the, the, the family room, maybe the bedroom, wherever. You don't drive away in the truck or the car. You don't do that. Because the person who drives away, the person who stays, isn't sure whether you're going to come back. So you stay at the house. You're committed. to hear The Holy Spirit lets the bell ring and says, this is sinful communication. We're going to get nowhere because man's anger never produces the righteousness that God wants. So we go to the corner, we get some refreshment, we cool down, we get our thinking back with not anger but reason of God's Word. We look for a principle in God's Word, we pray and talk to the coach so that when we come back out we have something new to present. If we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, if two people go to their corners and come back with nothing new, what's going to happen? They're going to go right back to the same thing because there's nothing different. You need to have something different, something biblical. Now, you might want to call Pastor Andy, Andrew. You might want to call one of the counselors. You might want to call a, 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 a learned, uh, an elder who has, has understanding. And you might want to talk, talk to your Sunday school teacher, your small group leader. Uh, send me an email. He might get a response in about a month. No. <laughs> But yeah, you, 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 you want more information. Then you come back and you bring the information into the ring. And you say, maybe you'll say, I didn't see this before, please forgive me. Maybe you'll say, dear, I don't think you saw this truth. And we want to be sensitive to what God thinks. Think about how this truth would change the conclusion of our of our discussion. Ah, sorry. And then you talk about those principles and you come to a solution that you can then take to a conference table and work it out. It's called Boxing Ring. And it has worked in many people's lives who are willing to hear the Spirit of God ring the bell. Now the bell doesn't ring, everything's up for grabs. It's going to be a lot of death. We don't want our marriages to die, we want them to bloom.
and grow and blossom and smell good and look good. Why? Because God receives the glory when I can go up to you and to you and to you and say, your marriage looks more like what God wants than it did last time I saw you. Let's pray. Father, be with us. Lord, so much truth here. We, I pray that these men and women would go home with a change of mind, at least in some way, about communication and resolving conflicts. That they would look at their desires and wants and realize whether they're what you want or desire and be willing to give up, deny themselves of their wants, submit them to yours. Be with them. Might change be in the air as they think about these things, talk about them, and apply them for your glory and for your honor. We ask you to be with the rest of our afternoon and our evening together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.